Hi, this is Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon Poison Center with yet another uh, journal club for October uh, 2009. Uh, today we are talking about aspirin and its relationship to RAIS or RISE syndrome, depending on how you want to present this. We started putting this together a couple of weeks ago and just as we were putting the finishing touches on the article pick came out, the uh, New York Times on October 13th had a little article buried in its not so much buried in its health section, about the 1918 flu pandemic. Is Was there another killer lurking amongst the ways that people died about aspirin, referencing this article that was uh, by Karen Starko. So we, th we threw that, we figured we'd talk about that one first. But uh, they were, the paper was reading my mind. You know, they could tell you're older. Some people think the TV is talking to them. But <laughs> that's in print ages. The paper's talking to us. So why is this all important? What's this got to do with toxicology? Um, well, the flu's around, and we're going to be the flu line here um, starting Monday. And one of the high-priority groups for pandemic H1N1 flu um, from the Oregon Health is the persons who should get the vaccine, a person's 25 to 64, or anyone who has a high-risk com complications with an asterisk after that high-risk complication to anyone on long-term aspirin therapy. And people may ask, why are people on long-term aspirin therapy at high risk for um, uh, the flu? And we're going to tell you all about that today. So first, this is a real interesting article. It's by Karen Starko. Just as some background, Karen Starko was one of many authors who did many uh, some of the original work on Ray's syndrome back in the 80s when this came out. And she released this article uh, just this month in November uh, 2009 in the Clinical Infectious Diseases Journal, and the title of her article is Salicylates and Pandemic Influenza Mortality, 1918-19, Pharmacology, Pathology, and Historical Evidence. And really, this is her sort of musings on what might have been also responsible for deaths in the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. Um, just to give you some historical background, deaths spiked around October of, of 1918, uh, approximately 30% of young people between the ages of 25 and 30 were infected with the flu and the influenza, and 1% of them died of pneumonia. But if you look at some of the pathology reports were done in some of the cases, there was really two overlapping clinical syndromes. One was this early severe acute respiratory disease, an ARDS-like condition that was responsible for maybe between 10 and 15% of the deaths, and then the vast majority of these deaths were later subsequent bacterial pneumonia, super infections, um, as, as we're seeing presently with deaths. Um, so the, the difference between the H1N1 flu, which was responsible for the Spanish flu in 1918, was that it infected the lower respiratory tract, produced this more severe respiratory distress syndrome, and may have created this dysregulation with its antiviral response, which has been called in newer publications a cytochrome storm that overwhelmed the body's defenses and with pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, during the fall of 1918, uh, death uh, influenza case fatality rates varied from city to city and places were as low as 0.5% to up to 10%, depending where you were in some army camps where these were first reported there were numerous cases, sometimes as many as 10,000 cases of pneumonia through the barracks of these camps. Um, and there didn't seem to be any plausible explanation except for population density, but it wasn't explained by environment or climate or anything else. 
So the hypothesis that Dr. Starko presents in this paper is that there was a perfect storm that created a subset within the Spanish flu with uh, some patients receiving aspirin. The reason it was a perfect storm is Bayer, uh, the makers of aspirin, lost their patent uh, for the product that they developed. This is a picture of their product line from that period of time um, in 1917. And multiple manufacturers then jumped into the aspirin market in late 1917. Um, and the flu kind of hit around 19. 18 in the fall, it was first in Europe, um, even though it wasn't in Spain initially, it got called the Spanish flu. And then as people were returning from World War I, um, it started breaking through these bar barracks and camps and, you know, where young people were congregating. Um, and so this perfect storm of a high volume of aspirin use without really recommendations on how to use it, and because people really don't understand the kinetics really until the last couple of decades. And then she notes that you know, there was Ray's syndrome, which we're going to talk about in quite a lot of detail, that occurred in the 1950s all the way up to the 1980s until they recognized a, a connection. But just to bring things up to what and how we should use aspirin, um, the FDA panel in 1977 recommended that the safe daily dose of aspirin for the general population was 4,000 milligrams, similar to Tylenol, although that has recently been recommended to be lower. Uh, and at a panel noted that simulations show that if you increase the dose from 2 to 4 grams a day, given every 6 hours, the total amount of drug in the body goes up 400%. So as you start exceeding this dose, aspirin seems to have a longer half-life, follows Michaelis Menten kinetics, and therefore your levels get higher. And basically, using this new knowledge from more recently, going back to how Patients used uh, physicians used aspirins in the early 1900s. They basically just pushed salicylate until toxicity occurred, and then they backed off a little bit and figured that was the right dose. And really, people who trained even as late as the 60s and 70s, that was sort of the way rheumatic fever um, was treated. In 1918, the recommendations for the flu were, were basically similar, just kind of treat as high as you can. Um, there's a couple of different uh, citations she goes back and finds uh, from the French records and how they treated the flu and the London doctor, which treated it with huge amounts, 20 grains hourly of aspirin and the Navy's Materiel Medica stated the maximum dose for a single dose was 1,300 milligrams. And then in October of 1918, literally as the pan flu of 1918 was beginning to peak, the Journal of American Medical Association uh, recommended that aspirin be given as a dose of one gram, which was 15 grains, every three hours, or a smaller dose combined with acetophedrogen, which is a precursor of Tylenol, I guess, in those days for symptomatic relief. Um, and um, basically, the, this perfect storm between the lack of uh, patent protection, recommendations by um, the uh, Surgeon General, the Navy, the JAMA for pushing aspirin high and the common usage patent, and our un unknown knowledge at that point of Ray syndrome, she postulates that um, many of these cases could have been raised. Um, and she cites some pathology reports that were obtained from that time in September 1918 at Camp Devins in Massachusetts. Uh, 12,000 plus soldiers had influenza, 727 had pneumonia. Um, a autopsy done by Colonel Welch concluded this must be some kind of new infection. 
Um, another pathologist um, noticed there was an unusual amount of lung tissue, which was actually pneumonic, but seemed too little in many cases to explain death by pneumonia alone. And he saw a thin, watery liquid in the lung tissue, pleural exudates and hemorrhages. But um, they also noted cerebral edema in a few cases, and brain weight was increased in about 50% of the people uh, who uh, died. And they also noted superficial fatty changes of uh, the brain, and um, I believe at one point they found finding similar findings in the liver. So we're going to talk about what Ray's syndrome is, and this is just a, you know an interesting speculation on Dr. Stanko's part. So Dr. Ray published his article in The Lancet. So this was Ralph Douglas Kenneth Ray of uh, the director of pathology in the Royal Alexandria Hospital in Sydney, in New South Wales. And he described cases of children that he had been collecting for the last 10 years, from 1951 to 1962, who had died of this unusual clinical pathologic syndrome. He had 21 children in all. And the clinical features were they presented with uh, um, initial period of malaise, often with cough, sore throat, ear, earache, rhinorrhea, after one to three days, but it varied as long as sometimes a few weeks, there was an abrupt clinical deterioration where vomiting began, which led to stupor, sometimes convulsions, sometimes delirium, sometimes with a brief period of recovery between these symptoms. And he noted in his 21 uh, cases, 17 of them had seizures. Um, the vomiting, when it occurred, was severe. They developed hyperpnea and irregular respirations and shallow breathing, um, and eventually they developed coma. Pupils became fixed, dilated, and responsive to light. Um, in 12 patients, they had ketonuria, or ketone on the breath. Um, four patients had a rash, um, which they thought could have been due to varicella um, at one point. Um, and then he basically did liver pathologies, noticed that he didn't comment on ammonia at that time, since we'll talk about that, but uh, their SGOT and their SGPT was raised in many of these cases, and the pathologic finding that made it unique, as opposed to a regular viral syndrome, his liver was slightly enlarged and felt unduly firm, and the capsular and cut surfaces were bri uniformly bright yellow. And it had fatty changes, which is most striking fever, and every cell and every lobule was packed with fatty droplets, which we now know is microvesicular uh, steatosis, which is a unique pathologic liver uh, finding in Ray's syndrome, for which it was named after this original article. So that's some of the background on what may have happened with the last major flu epidemic, and background on how the syndrome was first described based on 21 cases of observation over a period of 10 years. So now to kind of give us sort of a good overview on aspirin and its relationship to Ray's syndrome, or Toxvalo. Keith. Thanks, Zane. And just to illustrate that this is a prominent, least concern among parents, I was called three nights ago on a call and asked if a child who received a single dose of aspirin was going to get Ray's syndrome by a very concerned parent. Um, so my task now is to sort of take you through at least one author's review of the evidence over the last decades and try to convince you or not convince you that there is an association between Rice syndrome and aspirin, uh, which is somewhat controversial. This is a fairly robust article, and I will try to uh, highlight just the details. Uh, first, the uh, abstract just basically talks about 
the natural history, some of the clinical presentations, and the controversy that exists, most of which uh, Zane has already laid out. But just to reiterate, we know that Rice syndrome does exist, though overall it's fairly rare. The problem is that it's really bad, something on the order of 30 to 40 percent uh, mortality rate. Um, at its basis, it's probably related to an underlying mitochondrial defect, probably uh, a previously undiscovered inborn error of metabolism at the level of the mitochondria with what Zane says is sort of the perfect storm of a preceding illness, which almost always seems to be uh, necessary for the development of this uh, injury to susceptible tissue, particularly that of the liver and the brain stem, uh, and then possibly a role of a xenobiotic on board, and sort of all together creating a, just a, uh, a terrible milieu uh, in the body that leads to several different clinical features, uh, of which uh, hyperaminemia is a distinct feature in, in studying for lords. Uh, two nights ago, one of the questions on the pediatric section is, which of the following criteria is required to make the diagnosis of Rye syndrome? And the answer was elevated ammonia levels. So Dr. Rye in 1963 described uh, this syndrome based on a series of cases that he saw, and Zane went into that, but did a really cool job of at least describing some of the pathology features to make this diagnosis. And as we go through this article and look at some of the evidence and some of the studies, one of the universal critiques when studies have made this association is that very few cases actually went to pathology to sort of confirm clinical and laboratory features with uh, actual tissue diagnoses to sort of make this diagnosis really evident. And just in the abstract, he lists that already his conclusion is that aspirin is not a causative feature uh, of Rice syndrome, and then he proceeds in the next three pages to sort of lay that out based on some of the evidence. So the etiology, first of all, Rice syndrome is a uh, descriptive term, and it's one where the diagnosis is based on exclusion, i.e. looking for other causes of the clinical presentation before you make that uh, conclusion. It's thought, at least now, with advanced technology, uh, testing, etc., that it's really the vulnerable child, one with a genetic background that predisposes them to this uh, set of symptoms that is probably what's going on and not necessarily an aspirin sort of issue. Essential conditions, again, are the preceding viral illness. Something on the order of 19 different viruses have been implicated, though influenza and varicella seem to be recurrent viruses that probably are the most common ones that we associate, though maybe that's because influenza and varicella just happen to be very common childhood illnesses to begin with. One proposed mechanism includes um, a viral infection which causes disruption or injury to the Kupfer cells in the liver, which then leads to cytokine release, then leads to injury to susceptible tissue, as we mentioned, the liver and the brainstem, which then leads to several other downstream sort of effects and in addition to the viruses we mentioned, there are several other precipitants felt or at least associated with or speculated to be associated with the development of Rye syndrome. And these include aflatoxins, pesticides, insecticides, uh, various other chemicals, and other medications too that they include, such as phenothiazines, minoclopramide, valproic acid, 
um, and several different anti-emetic medications. Um, there may be a role for the P450 uh, system in uh, the etiology of this, though it's not totally worked out um, thus far. Again, uh, we know that some inborn errors of metabolism are associated with mitochondrial uh, defect, particularly with uh, fatty acid uh, metabolism. And these um, human models, at least not that are not associated with febrile illnesses or aspirin, do share some of the clinical features that we do see in Rye syndrome, which is probably what led researchers to sort of suggest, gosh, maybe this is sort of an intrinsic disease and not necessarily related to an infection or an aspirin. Um, there seems to be an impairment with certain mitochondrial uh, diseases that leads to uh, disruption in oxidative phosphorylation, uh, which uh, makes sense. Uh, he goes on to speculate or suggest, based on some studies, that maybe 20% of children with quote-unquote Rice syndrome never had anything, what we typically think of Rice syndrome, but just had a metabolic disease that no one knew about when they just called it Rice syndrome, and that was really probably the cause of it. We know that uh, during this event or during this clinical process, we see increases in free fatty acid uh, within the serum, particularly long-chain fatty acids and dicarboxylic acid, which seems to be, or at least is implicated, as one of the different factors that cause uh, tissue destruction. So that's sort of his uh, etiology, some of the pathophysiology behind his uh, premise here. And uh, his next section is looking at the pharmacodynamics of salicylates, and a potential role in pathogenesis. Um, we know that aspirin in high doses both uncouples oxidative phosphorylation and inhibits beta oxidation, two things that are found in Rice syndrome. Though, if you want this to happen, or if this is going to happen, it really takes pretty high doses of aspirin for this. So the child, I, I think what he's implying is the child who gets a dose of aspirin probably does not have enough aspirin on board for the aspirin to cause these injuries, which we see sometimes in folks who take massive overdoses or very large uh, overdoses. Though clinically, there are some similarities in the aspirin-intoxicated patient and the patient with Rice syndrome. Uh, pathologically, or at least at the tissue level, there seems to be uh, some differences which he um, lays out. One uh, interesting point is... Um, the microvesicular steatitosis uh, of the liver, which can occur with aspirin intoxications, and is also a feature in Rice syndrome. However, it is also a feature in many other things, and it's not specific to either one of these uh, diseases. Uh, there is some uh, thoughts about activation of uh, systemic host defense uh, and some disturbed mitochondrial calcium metabolism. These are more theoretical than actually proven. Uh, the relationship between salicylate plasma levels and Rice syndrome, this is where it gets at least interesting, and we're going to now kind of focus on some actual data and some studies, all of which suggest a possible link, but all of which are very highly criticized uh, for right or for wrong. I guess that's for us to decide. Um, there was one study out of Ohio that looked at data over the last, or excuse me, looked at data through the 60s, 70s, and the first part of the 80s, that did show that there was a difference in uh, dosing, or excuse me, at aspirin levels in those kids who had Rice syndrome and then survived versus those who had Rice syndrome and then died. And the difference was 10 mg 
per deciliter on average among the children who survived, as opposed to 15 <coughs> milligrams per deciliter in the children that, uh, that died. And this is in comparison to children who are matched children without Rice syndrome, who on average on sampling had mean levels less than 20. So there was a conclusion, or at least associated, or excuse me, association inferred from that. However, he goes on to, to mention that just based on the information that you have, you can't really make a causative um, statement on that. And the testing at the time was pretty lousy. Um, it was the Trender assay, and he goes into some reasons why it wasn't very good. Um, but it, as far as I understand, is an assay we no longer use to look for solicitate levels. So the argument here is that the way we measured solicitate levels was pretty crummy, not reliable, so it's hard to make a conclusion based on a test that didn't really give good sort of results. Um, and they also mentioned that there was no dose-response curve that they could sort of tease out from this uh, to demonstrate causation. Yeah, I think one of the problems that was Trinder was a cross-reactivity with phenothiazines, and at that time, like Phenergan suppositories and Tigan suppositories were pretty widely used in children with vomiting. So a lot of these children had both agents on board, so the Trinder assay may have not been that specific mm -hmm. just for solicitates. He also comments that there's actually no animal model um, for Rice syndrome, at least in the, the setting of solicitate uh, use, which is always a convenient way for... Uh, researcher to convince all of us of an association. It's nice to have several different things, including an animal model, which we don't really have. Um, so there are some epidemiologic studies on aspirin and rice syndrome. Uh, table 1 lists 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 14 different countries um, and lists a number of reported cases and makes an association or at least a number of those cases that reported to have aspirin on board. And it's actually quite a, a variable rate from India where they report 70 cases and not a single one of these children had aspirin on board at any point uh, to places like Thailand where 71% of the children had aspirin uh, in their system uh, to, to make this diagnosis. Um, with markedly advanced diagnostics, the author suggests, uh, including molecular biolo biologic techniques, most Rye syndrome can be explained based on inborn errors metabolism, and that's a recurrent theme over and over and over. At least four U.S. studies are quoted in this paper, all of which prompted the United States uh, Public Health Service to conduct two studies on their own. And just going through each one of these briefly, the first study from Arizona showed a 100% uh, incidence of uh, aspirin uh, in a... Uh, group of children diagnosed with Rice syndrome uh, who had influenza A versus 50% of matched, uh, controlled uh, children who didn't have um, Rice syndrome but were taking aspirin. Uh, two studies uh, out of Michigan um, showed that there was an increased uh, risk of aspirin use uh, among children diagnosed with Rice syndrome. Uh, and uh, another Ohio study, and I'm sure this was the first one or not, showed that 94 out of 97% of their children were taking aspirin uh, versus a much lower incidence of matched controls who uh, were not taking aspirin and did not have Rye syndrome. Um, again, all of these are highly criticized. One of probably the biggest criticism, as um, Rob likes to uh, mention quite a bit, is that 
A lot of times the exposure was based on a retrospective review through interviews where they asked the family members as up to six to eight weeks later once the diagnosis was already made, potentially even after a fatal outcome uh, was apparent, is if the child was given aspirin during their febrile illness. And you can imagine two months later after your child either died or had a really bad illness, someone sends you a survey and asks you how much aspirin did you give your kiddo. I mean, it's probably hard to not only recall or remember, but you may be a little bit biased in how you report how much aspirin you, you gave your child. So that's uh, one unique feature. Um, and they also mentioned that there's biased sampling and study design issues, low numbers of patients in most of these studies, uh, often a lack of a tissue diagnosis, etc., which really make validating these studies somewhat difficult. So the U.S. Public Health Service, as I mentioned, did put out their own set of studies. There was two. There was a pilot study, a main study, um, and it was this huge multi-center study. It was like 70 pediatric centers that participated. They had to have inclusion in inclusion criteria consisting of, one, a physician had to make the diagnosis of Rye syndrome, at least clinically. They had to have some sort of antecedent respiratory GI illness or chickenpox, and they had to have encephalopathy. And though there were 70 centers, they actually whittled down the final number of children to just 27 after lots and lots of exclusion. Probably some of that is because they actually halted the study early because they found that something on the order of 90% plus of patients enrolled with Rice syndrome were receiving salicylate. So in their mind, that was enough to stop the study. They, they concluded that it was a three-time greater use of aspirin in the Rye group than matched controls. And again, that sparked a lot of public attention and may have been sort of the driving force for no longer using aspirin now, or at least part of it. But there's a, a ton of critique and criticism that this particular author uh, has with this sort of paper, um, including multiple bias issues, uh, aware, sort of public knowledge and awareness at the time, so maybe a Hawthorne effect where you're looking for the disease and maybe your diagnosis is somewhat off. Um, again, issues with how they got the exposure group, um, etc. So Rob's dying to yeah, make a statement I, here. So. <laughs> I was just sort of amazed that they didn't mention inclusion bias. You know, in 1982, the U.S. Surgeon General said there is an association between salicylates and Rye syndrome, and both that U.S. Public Health Survey was published in 1987, and no surprise, 93% of people who the physician felt had Rye syndrome were associated with salicylates. <laughs> yeah. Five years after the Surgeon General said that Rye syndrome is associated with salicylates, so... Uh, very surprising that they don't even mention that people were already defining Rye syndrome. If you didn't take salicylates, they probably diagnosed you with something else, yeah. <laughs> some yeah. other microvesicular steatosis. So, yeah. uh, pretty interesting and flimsy. Yeah. We'll talk about that paper next in a little more detail. And interestingly, as we've sort of looked at this disease over the last three decades now, uh, the pink the the peak sort of occurred at nineteen nineteen eighty with over 550 cases, but we've just seen steadily decreasing numbers of Rice syndrome, and you could make a lot of different speculations why this is. You could say, well, that's because we diagnose it differently. You could say it's because we don't give children aspirin anymore. 
you could say, well, maybe for some reason there was a peak in a certain virus or certain unknown environmental factor that was present at this time that that's no longer there. And now we're seeing a decline in this because that environmental factor that we don't know about is no longer present. Uh, the incidence now, at least, is considered to be less than 0 0.03 uh, per uh, 100,000 individuals, less than 18. So I, I think it's fair to say at least it's a fairly rare disease. Yeah, and that's probably the strongest argument for the aspirin is that even though all these studies were done, they were small numbers, and even the giant multicenter study, which we'll talk about, didn't have great numbers. But based on those studies, in 1980s statistics and mindset, there was gigantic ad campaign warnings to take aspirin. Don't take aspirin if you have the cold or flu or anything. So aspirin use plummeted. And at the same time, in the years that followed, we'll talk about that in another paper in a second, raise almost went away. So uh, the question is, was, was it aspirin or was it something else? There are some European studies listed in here. Rice syndrome in the UK and one big study showed some differences that their, their children were usually younger at the time of diagnosis. They had no seasonal variation of Rice syndrome uh, like we do here. Uh, they do list that there, at least they found an association um, among aspirin use and Rice syndrome. Again, that's countered with a paragraph uh, citing uh, critique that's twice as long as the paragraph citing the uh, rationale for association. Uh, there are a few other small studies from around uh, the rest of Europe, Germany, uh, Denmark, uh, Sweden, excuse me, Switzerland, France, um, that vary somewhat in their uh, conclusions about whether there's an association with uh, Rice syndrome or not. Um, let's see, different. There was one interesting point here um, that I'm trying to find here. There. There's something about France. Okay. So uh, epidemiologic and experimental studies are compatible with the hypothesis that cryptogenic rice syndrome may arise from an unusual response to viral infection, possibly determined by host genetic factors, but modified by a range of exogenous agents, which is sort of like, if you will, the one or two sentence conclusion behind sort of the, the theoretic or pathophysiology behind this. Again, the way I interpret this, Rice syndrome was rare. It's very bad. There's probably several different things that have to come together all at once to make this happen. At the baseline is probably a genetically susceptible host who probably acquires an infection where impaired sort of response occurs. And whether or not there is a xenobiotic role in this pathophysiology, I think, is still to be sort of teased out or figured out. But at least some literature... Um, finds an association with this sort of with this process. Uh, I'll just finish up here quickly, and, and then looks like Rob's got another thing he'd like to say here. Is that he goes on to sort of talk about the current situation and makes an argument that maybe aspirin is the medication of choice in upper airway inflammatory diseases uh, instead of using Tylenol, excuse me, acetaminophen, which we use commonly. His argument is that acetaminophen is a less favorable anti-inflammatory and may not cure our children when they uh, have this problem. Um, and he goes on to state that, you know, we use aspirin all the time in Kawasaki's disease, which is a 
febrile illness of unknown etiology, perhaps related to a viral trigger, and there's no Rye syndrome in this group, though we use very high uh, doses of that. But we shall see. But we shall see. That's right. Another article. Um, uh, and then, I guess his, uh, his final conclusion is that etiology is not totally teased out. We have some different thoughts. Maybe aspirin is safe, um, and it's hard to make a conclusion that aspirin causes Rice syndrome. There's, an, there's some information on the asthma, and I don't know if that's mentioned in another paper. I know we had brought this up, so I can um, bring this up here. So, Okay, you want to mention that here, Rob? There, I have just a very small graph. So I was very intrigued by his comment that asthma cases have paralleled the increase in acetaminophen. Uh, you know, before I go into that, there, you were saying mentioning France, too, and I don't think we made the point that in Australia, they never made an association with salicylates, and yet Rice syndrome decreased at the same rate it did in the U.S. And in France and Belgium, where they continued to use aspirin through the 90s, the Rice syndrome rate also dropped at the same rate. So that argument that, thank goodness we stopped using aspirin, is uh, gets thinner as, the, as you look at other countries. But um, So he, he talks about this very interesting paper, um, that associated uh, acetaminophen use with asthma in adults. And I pulled the paper. It's very interesting. Um, I don't know that it, it's quite as strong as it's mentioned in that uh, in the paper we're reviewing. But the basic theory is that um, in asthmatic individuals, uh, they have reactive oxygen species and nitric oxide by uh, released by inflammatory cells uh, that are much increased compared to controls. And if you look in epithelial cells, they have a bunch of antioxidants, ascorbic acid, alpha tocopherol, and GSH, which is reduced glutathione. Um, and in patients who are exposed to inflammatory agents like cigarette smoke, they have higher levels of GSH. So it's thought that maybe GSH, glutathione, is a antioxidant and protects um, patients from lung damage, uh, and in fact, patients with asthma have higher GSH levels in their bronchial fluid and their epithelial lining, uh, and they also, um, the higher their GSH levels, the lower their bronchial responsiveness is, which is pretty interesting. So they basically looked at this big database of patients, about 9,000 patients that they had, and they were looking, the main study was looking at asthma and um, risk factors, and they took a subset of them, about 1,500 asthmatic and 2,000 individuals without asthma. And they looked at acetaminophen use, and it was interesting, they looked at aspirin use and acetaminophen use. No association with asthma with aspirin use, but the people who used higher uh, frequency acetaminophen had higher rates of asthma, uh, and statistically significantly so. And the, the more frequent your acetaminophen use, the higher your risk of having severe asthma versus mild asthma, which is all pretty interesting. Uh, unfortunately, they, they probably didn't correct for some confounding variables, which were patients with asthma tended to be of uh, lower income group. They tended to rent more than own. They tended to be more unemployed, more likely to be a single parent, and more likely to have exposure to passive cigarette smoke. So all of which may have really significant uh, uh, impact on asthma rates. 
uh, rather than the acetaminophen. I don't know what the association of being a single parent and using acetaminophen is, <laughs> but um, it certainly may uh, be more of a, a, a confounding effect that acetaminophen, daily acetaminophen use is simply just a marker for another risk factor for asthma. Yeah, so it raises a very interesting question whether when you have the theory of uh, unintended consequences of good actions that we take aspirin off the market and somehow, you know, through mechanisms that no one could possibly fathom, um, unleash the rapid rise in asthma cases because we're no longer sort of suppressing their um, inflammatory response to colds and viruses. And it's a good study for probably future uh, research. Um, you know, match cohort control. So speaking of cohort studies, the one that was sort of, first of all, let me just say that the study that Keith just reviewed has a small disclaimer in it that, you know, the author, well, this was funded by Bayer Healthcare in Germany. And so perhaps may have a bias, said or unsaid, towards believing that aspirin is a wonder drug, which it is if you're having a heart attack, uh, but um, maybe perhaps overstated the the negative say. But there's other people who have commented that perhaps the case for aspirin race syndrome wasn't completely completely made, and there's um, some editorial comments that accompany this article in Pete's Drugs saying the controversy basically rages over three concerns, that one, children with the diagnosis of race can have never received aspirin in some cases, and maybe those are the subset with unique uh, enzymatic deficits. Um, there's different age profiles between the people who had a, uh, raised in the United States and the United Kingdom, which makes you scratch your head and wonder, was were these two different diseases or different phenomenons? And if there's difficulties with the case definition, um, that there may be a classical raise, which has to do with you have to have aspirin and the flu, and then the perfect storm, and uh, you get hyperaminemia and coma, versus these recurrent raise-like inherited metabolic disorders, which have been predominantly what's been talked about since about the late 90s, since the actual aspirin-induced or aspirin-associated, I should say, raised syndrome went away. But let's look back at a paper that came out towards the tail end after all the uh, uh, raise association uh, was made in the United States and the Public Health Service and the Surgeon General had all made their statements. And people were looking for, as we are always in toxicology, the dose-response curve. And so... EM resident, Bobby, tell us about whether or not there is a dose-response curve. All right, thanks. Um, so I have the article Rye Syndrome and Aspirin. It's from JAMA in 1988, with Pinsky being the lead author. Um, again, this study is referencing the uh, numerous studies back in the early 80s that show an association between aspirin or salicylates and, um, and then following with rise. But um, the main study that this... Um, particular article references the Public Health Service main study of Rye syndrome and medications. And what they do is they take this in retrospective cohort study and they try to break it apart and um, kind of match cases and controls and look back for a dose-response relationship. Um, again, there was a previous uh, association tendency for case patients to receive more frequent aspirin and higher doses of aspirin in the previous studies, but they wanted to kind of tease that out um, more effectively. They also wanted to look at the timing, duration, and dose of aspirin given. So they took this um, preceding study, um, which was actually a comparison of um, 70 pediatric tertiary care centers, and each of these um, 
children would have had an antecedent respiratory chickenpox or a GI illness, and we've got medic medications administered, and then again they matched cases that had Rye syndrome to um, other control cases, and they had four, four different groups from the ED, from the inpatient setting, from schools, and from the community. And actually this study grouped all of the match controls into one group because of their low numbers, although there were four uh, inpatient uh, matched cases. So um, they together grouped that group. Um, so then they, the way they got their data was actually in a retrospective analysis and they got information from the children's primary, well, their care providers, meaning their parents or the people that took care of them or asked the children if they were also able to. And so then again, retrospectively, they asked about their exposure. And so they asked, um, they defined again, medication event as any time that child got any kind of medication during the antecedent um, illness. And then they defined an aspirin medication event as any of those um, doses that were actually aspirin. And so they actually asked the parents or care providers to give the date these were given, the exact brand name, the amount, and the number of doses given. And they actually then had a pharmacist that calculated a mix per kg dose, um, again, at the time of the data analysis, and, um, and then tried to look at the difference in the average daily dose, the maximum daily dose, and then the total four-day dose during the first four days of the antecedent illness. And they tried to find a difference between cases and controls there. Um, and they then, you know, did their multivariate analysis. They um, tried to you know, match their groups. I, there were some interesting um, ex variables they chose not to um, include in their multivariate analysis. Again, one being disease severity. They claimed that their um, controls actually had greater disease severity, so they took out that variable, which I found interesting. And then they also took out um, two of the original matching variables from the first study. They um, they took, uh, it was race and um, then whether it was a respiratory illness. And they actually did not include those two variables in the um, final analysis. But they, again, they took um, all this data, they classified the exposures to, to acetaminophen, I mean, sorry, to a, a ASA as either low, intermediate, or high dose um, exposures. And then um, they and did their results analysis. So what they found was that um, among those exposed to aspirin, the cases had greater average daily exposure, maximum daily exposure, and first four total day exposures that were higher um, than those in the match control groups. So again, the median and the low dose was you know, 25 mix per kg um, in the in the case group, and then 14 in the control group. And again, the um, next for the maximum daily dose went to 33 mg per kg in the case group and 19 in the control group. And then total um, first four-day exposure was 65 milligrams per kilogram in the cases and 27 in the controls. And so they um, can found higher total exposure, higher number of, quote, events, and again, the first four. They did compare, which I thought was a very good um, point they did make, they looked at the total number of medications given uh, in both groups, and they found those to be similar. So it was not a fact that, well, at least 
what they're claiming is that it was not due to these patients just being undertreated in general and weren't given anything for their symptoms. They were given just alternate medications for those same symptoms. And uh, they didn't include that. Um, they did find that um, in their review here that 73% of cases of Rye syndrome were exposed to at least 40 mg per kg of aspirin. And then overall, 87% of the cases were exposed to at least 15 mg per kg per day. Um, and again, those were obviously much lower in the control group. Um, and then they found the analyzed next through their regression model relative risks. And they found a, again, a relative risk of 7.3 for um, average daily dose in the lower cat category, uh, relative risk of 61 uh, for being in the intermediate category, which is greater than 15 mg per kg, and then was up to uh, 73 in the higher group. And so, again, they tried to just come through and using this retrospective data analysis show this difference in the excess risk associated with increasing the aspirin dose. Um, again, there were a few major problems with the way they analyzed the data, the first being you know, the damage of recall bias in this situation because, again, it's a retrospective exposure analysis. There, uh, again, those parents whose children develop Rye syndrome and have heard the uh, ensuing concerns for aspirin exposure and Rye would be more likely to report not only just the presence of aspirin in general, but may over-report the number of times they were actually exposed or, or over-report the dose and those that were controls and did not develop that sequela may have you know, underdosed or, or said they gave even less than they did. And um, also just the fact that we, were, we don't have any actual data from when uh, medications were given as a big limiting factor. And again, I it did have some questions about just the, the reason they chose to exclude a couple of the variables from their final regression analysis. It didn't really seem to be really necessary to exclude certain of those variables, but um, yeah, I feel like they there's obviously an association, and I think they've proven that what they thought in the first place, they thought there was an association. They have also seemed to have found an association, but again, with a retrospective analysis and um, again, relying on caregivers and um, estimates of doses from weeks, weeks, years prior, um, it's hard to really pin down a causal relationship. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, again, cited as one of the, quote, big studies on Ray syndrome, but when you look at it, it took 70 centers to come up with 27 patients, and it doesn't really say over how many years, I mean, it's probably over more than one year to come up with those patients, and then they draw a lot of the conclusions based on recall, did the parent or the caregiver recall how many doses of aspirin per day and how many milligrams, and even though they had the pharmacist calculate that all out, you can make calculations based on... You know, recall bias guesses, mm -hmm. so, something we do in toxicology and poison center a lot. We decide whether or not to send someone to the hospital, but still, the the real differences between those numbers between 15 milligrams a day, which isn't a really high dose, and 40 milligrams a day, are may not be relatively significant. So again, almost lends support to the original article that is this is just um, a needle in a haystack kind of phenomenon, and there was a viral illness every. Uh, fall and winter, and in it, it unmasked a few cases of this rare genetic deficiency because it took so many years just to get 20, 30 patients that had had the disease. But 
it sort of makes a weak case that the more aspirin you give, the higher your risk is to have Reyes syndrome. So again, not completely con convincing. So let's jump forward about a decade. Someone can ask, well, what happened to Reyes syndrome after we all got upset and scared and took aspirin off the market? What happened after 1980 to it? And to review an article from the New England Journal, we have our medical student. Okay, so this is an article from 1989 put out by the CDC um, in the New England Journal. Um, in this article in the abstract, they kind of outline the reason for the study. Um, their purpose, number one, was to kind of identify the patterns of race syndrome, both temporally and secondly, to kind of identify the patient demographics um, for those getting race syndrome. And the last thing that they wanted to kind of hopefully identify was the risks for um, for prognosis in these patients. So they kind of start the article by um, defining Ray syndrome, which we've already kind of done here, um, synthesapalopathy and fatty degeneration of the liver and um, associated with increased ammonia levels and increased LFTs. And they again point out that many uh, inborn metabolic disorders can mimic Ray syndrome, um, but they kind of identify that um, if you actually do a biopsy and look at the liver tissue, that Ray syndrome is um, distinguished by this kind of these ultrastructural changes that include proliferation of smooth and cosmic reticulum, peroxisomes, um, as well as these changes in the mitochondria um, that they kind of define as a way to distinguish between the two. Um, and again, um, like we've mentioned before, there's kind of unknown etiology of Ray syndrome, but it's often preceded by a viral syndrome. So for this particular study in the, in the mid-1970s, the CDC started um, a national surveillance for Ray syndrome in which um, hospitals and physicians were encouraged to report any um, Ray syndrome in their patients. So they started looking at the data more closely in 1980. I think is when they started really looking at this as it came about. Um, and so their kind of inclusion criteria for a race syndrome case was an acute non-inflammatory encephalopathy that had to have um, fatty metamorphosis of the liver diagnosed at biopsy or at autopsy, or they could have a tripling of their LFTs or ammonia in the serum. So that was their inclusion criteria. And then for each of these patients, they staged them on a zero to six scale as illustrated on table one. Um, and most of that is just staging by level of consciousness. So um, they point out that stage zero didn't count because it's alert and wakeful, and in order to meet their criteria, you have to have some evidence of encephalopathy. Um, and again, they included only patients less than 18 years of age. So after going through all the data, um, from December 1st through November of 1980 through November 30th of 1997, um, they had a, over 12,000 cases of Ray syndrome. And if you look at figure one on the next page, um, they show you that the peak of Ray syndrome was in 1980, where 555 cases were reported. Um, and that's about the same time that a possible relationship between aspirin and Ray started being published in the literature. Um, and you can see that there's a dramatic decrease in the case reports. Um, and again, the Surgeon General Advisory was issued in 1982. And again, you see another drop in the case reports of 
Ray syndrome. And then lastly, in 1986, when they labeled aspirin-containing medications as another decrease. And you can kind of follow it through time and see that the cases have nearly gone to zero by 1997. Then they kind of go on to talk about demographics. It was about 50-50 male-female in their cases, 52% female. Um, but 93% were white patients. Um, only 5% were black. And the remaining were uh, Pacific Islanders and Native Americans. Um, and of the majority of their patients that they included uh, were school-aged children, 5 to 14. So that was kind of their big chunk. Um, and more 1 to 4 years old were about 25%. So about 75% of their patients were um, less than 14 years of age. Um, and then they kind of mentioned something that I think is interesting, is that they, we talked about already that 93% were white race, but they kind of throw in that there's a similar incidence of race syndrome among black and white infants. Um, so in the age group of 0 to 1, there was a same, similar incidence, but they don't really delve into that any further, which I thought was interesting. Um, and for those that they had data on, 93% had um, a preceding illness. And of those illnesses, respiratory illnesses were the most common, followed by varicella and diarrhea, and then lastly, illnesses with a rash. Um, but again, respiratory illnesses were the most common. Um, and the other thing that they kind of pointed out is that there's... Um, and you can see this better in figure three. There is a uh, seasonal variation in the cases of Ray syndrome um, that peak kind of in January, February, um, which they associated with, with the, the flu season. So they had included this time frame from December to November to show the peak in the flu season in the cases there. Um, so the other thing that they were able to do was actually get salicylate levels from the hospital admission of these patients. So um, out of all their patients, out of the 12,000, about half of them, a little over half, had levels drawn. And of those that had levels drawn, 82% had detectable salicylate levels in them. Um, and they also point out that this number was significantly higher from 1981 to 1986 before the, the aspirin-containing medications received a warning on their labels. Um, that was about 84%. And they compare that to 1987 to 1997, in which only 67% um, of the patients had detectable salicylate levels of those that were tested in. So they point that out as a, a significant difference before and after um, people became more aware of the association. Um, and the last thing that they kind of point out is that there are patients um, in this age group that are on regular long-term treatment for um, certain illnesses on aspirin, and the most common was juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. So um, I think they threw that in there just to point out it's not just acute illnesses proceeding that are going to um, give patients, that parents are going to give their patients aspirin, but there's also some cases of race syndrome associated with kind of more long-term aspirin use. Um, so then they kind of discuss the staging. Um, and what I think is kind of interesting is that they, they point out that many patients at admission didn't have as high of a stage of illness that they were discharged with or the peak. So, so almost half of them had a stage 3, 4, or 5 illness at some point during their admission. Um, but they really only kind of outline in Table 2 the um, admission staging. So I think it's safe to say that most of the patient's symptoms worsened with admission 
and that these staging criteria are a little bit um, behind in, in, in terms of their illness and where it's going to go. But I think what's important to note is that of the, of the very few patients who came in um, in stage five, almost 90% of them had a case fatality rate. Whereas if the patients came in with, um, say, a stage one, then they had a only 18%, 19% case fatality rate. Um, and you can see that out of the totals, the most common staging to enter and have an admission for Ray syndrome was stage one and two, 415 and 393 cases, respectively. Um, so that's the most common admission staging. So when you look at all of them, the case fatality rate in, this, in looking at these nearly 12, 1,200 patients was uh, 31%. And they, they noted that there was a higher case fatality rate if the child was less than five years old. The fatality rate was 42.8%. And they compared that to children over five years of age in which the case fatality rate was only 24%. Um, the other thing that they noted was that if their ammonia level was above 45 micrograms per deciliter, they had a 28.6% fatality rate. If it was lower than that, um, it was 8.4 case fatality rate percent case fatality rate. And I'm not, they didn't really mention where they got that number 45, but that seemed to be their cutoff point for increased case fatality rate. And then they kind of mentioned that if diarrhea was an in the antecedent illness, if their glucose was less than 60, or they were of black race, that those were also kind of indicators for poor prognosis, although the biggest contributors were the ammonia level um, and the staging on admission. And then the kind of last thing that they noted was kind of long-term neurological complications, which Ray syndrome itself is very rare, and so are kind of lingering neurological complications even more rare. But they did note that patients who had higher ammonia levels um, had a greater risk of neurological complications. But that being said, there's a 62% complete recovery um, for patients with Ray syndrome. So in their discussion, they just kind of point out that there's been a decreased number of cases overall, especially as the advent of the warnings, the Surgeon General warning and the labels on the aspirin-containing medications. And then additionally, they point out that the peak in the winter, they associate that with increased numbers of influenza viruses and kind of the flu season in general. Um, and even still, as we pointed out before, they, they quote that there's 0.06 per 100,000 persons under 18 years of age um, is the annual rate of hospitalizations, which, again, is very, very low. Um, and then the last thing that they just kind of point out is that the, in, just to keep in mind, in more metabolic disorders can mimic Ray's syndrome. And I think their conclusions are really that Decreased aspirin use has led to a decreased number in race syndrome. They make that association pretty clearly. Um, and I think that's kind of all I wanted to say. I do think it's interesting that they um, didn't really comment on the difference in um, the race category, blacks versus white, and why that's such a huge discrepancy in cases. Um, and also didn't really discuss much about how their reporting system was defined, what hospitals knew about the reporting system, who had access to it, and how 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 was it utilized, I guess, is a, a good thing to keep in mind, too. Are they community hospitals or the academic hospitals? 
I think that'll change your demographics as well. Yeah, you know, again, it's a good article, but again, it, it describes similar to the Poison Center reporting system as a passive surveillance system. It basically requires someone to take the initiative to make the call to the CDC or, and fill out a bunch of forms and say the patient's ammonia was this and their staging was this and they're filling all the demographics they were, they were looking for. So it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time by the physician who's willing to report it. And you're right, it's more likely to get reported from tertiary referral centers and academic teaching centers than it is from community hospitals and, and some of the, the race-based biases may come in there, places that are, are busy and are admitting a lot of patients. You may not want to be taking that time to, to call and report. But even so, it took 17 years to generate 1,200 cases with this passive surveillance system. So e even after um, the peak year of 500 cases in that year and the association made with aspirin, um, it still remained a rare disease, which is why some of the papers, especially the other ones we didn't cover um, from Europe, suggest that because they didn't uh, put the kibosh on aspirin right away like we did, and the rates started falling then. Was this some viral thing <laughs> that came and went? Was this some other thing that came and went? And clearly we know that there are some uh, metabolic disorders that masquerade, and they've actually been identified, all these uh, carnitine and, and aryl-CoA kind of deficiencies of maybe 20, 30 different metabolic disorders that have now been specifically identified that create this raised-like syndrome. But I guess the point they make is those metabolic orders don't develop this microvesicular steatosis that we see when you have, again, the perfect storm of influenza, aspirin, and hyperaminemia developing. So there may be why we call it a syndrome and not a disease is it may be two or three different etiologies for the end result of uh, the same syndrome. So to cover a couple of things, a couple of little footnotes to the disease, um, the first paper mentioned, and this last one mentioned JRA is people being on high aspirin. Another reason we put people on high dose aspirin is Kawasaki's syndrome. And in fact, we had a case through our poison center about two or three years ago who had Kawasaki's syndrome and developed Ray syndrome and died and had the classic pathology um, at autopsy. So um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of papers describing this, but we didn't write up our case, and maybe that was our uh, fault, but there's a good case report describing a very similar case from the literature. All right, so I'm going to talk about this case report. So this is um, from Taiwan out of the Journal of Pediatric Child Health from 2005, and they have a uh, case report of a 10-month-old um, boy that was previously healthy and then um, developed an intermittent high fever without other symptoms initially. And then on the fourth day, he developed a skin rash that was papular, started on all four extremities, and then spread rapidly to the trunk and face. He was sent to the local hospital. They did an exam, and then the following day admitted him found that he had mild anemia and increased PSR. They did an echo and it was normal. They diagnosed Kawasaki syndrome, started IVIG and high dose oral aspirin. This was started on the seventh day. His fever then subsided on the eighth day and his activity and appetite improved. And they decreased his oral aspirin to a lower dose. And then on the 10th day, this was 72 hours after starting the high-dose aspirin, he had a sudden onset of poor activity, poor appetite, and lethargy. 
On the next day, they noted tachycardia, tachypnea, and increased ALT and AST and increased ammonia as well. And they discontinued the aspirin at that time. They also transferred him at that point to another hospital with an ICU. And they noted then that he had a, a mild hepatomegaly and then decreased deep tendon reflex but no other focal neurologic signs, worsening of his anemia, thrombocytosis, further increase in his AST and ALT, as well as a prolonged prothrombin time. And they had noted that his CSF fluid was normal. They gave him um, glucose and mannitol, and then um, later did a liver biopsy that showed microvesicular fatty degeneration of hepatocytes. So they um, felt that this was a Ray syndrome following the Kawasaki syndrome. So their discussion was uh, along this line that there's, they noted that there's four case control studies that have shown 93, 97, 100, and 100% correlation between RS and aspirin use. And this, um, they noted that aspirin might interfere with mitochondrial activation and thus the oxidation of long chain fatty acids. And that the um, research suggests that membrane permeability transition may be a common pathophysiological method, mechanism of. Bray syndrome, the onset of the membrane um, permeability transition causes mitochondrial swelling, depolarization, and uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation, causing an impairment of many metabolic enzymatic steps in the mitochondria. Then they go on to note that there's no clear correlation between aspirin usage and treatment of KS and RS that has been reported. And in their patient, they suspected that the preceding viral um, infections or KS itself induced cytokine responses with subsequent, subsequent inflammatory responses. And the, the possible genetic inheritance, inheritance of intracellular calcium regulation may contribute to the development of RS. And then they went on to point out that another um, Etiology may be genetic susceptibility or viral infection. This may have had some role in the development of RS. The other interesting thing about this study was that they did a urine gas chromatography and um, in addition to the usual metabolic products of aspirin, salicylic acid, etc., they found um, elevation of dicarboxylic acid, which is one of the potential etiologies that was mentioned by Keith. And, and several other um, acids, including lactic acid and ketone acids, and then elevations of several acyl carnitines and phenylalanines, which may suggest that there was an underlying metabolic disorder in this child as well. So it sort of, uh, again, teases out, again, some of the etiologies, maybe some of these abnormal metabolic pathways that are activated from high-dose aspirin. But again, it's a sort of an instructive case that people are on high-dose aspirin for good reasons, like JRA and Kawasaki's, are at risk for uh, this phenomenon. Just to kind of bring in all of the oddities toxicologists like to talk about, 
There's a case of Ray syndrome associated with Argosa oil. So this is a um, several case <coughs> reports of um, Argosa oil poisoning as a cause of Ray syndrome from Malaysia. This um, was this article was in the Lancet in 1981. So they start out by um, talking about Margosa oil. It's a deep yellow oil that smells bad and has a bitter taste. And extracted from the seeds of the neem tree, it's also called an Indian lilac. And it's a traditional medicine um, used in southeast in several Southeast Asian countries in India. The oil contains um, sul volatile sulfur compounds and fatty acids, as well as bitters, and the bitters are toxic. They're not present in fresh samples, but then they're found in various amounts in um, commercial samples, and it's thought to be a, that it develops secondarily um, during storage. So there are case reports where of 13 infants and children with uh, Margosa oil poisoning from December of 97 through 1980. They were all of Indian origin, and their ages ranged from 21 days to 4 years. Uh, none of them <laughs> had been malnourished. Um, they all had been given between 5 and 30 milliliters of the oil by their parents, for minor ailments. The children then went on to develop vomiting within two minutes to one and a half hours. They also um, noted that other usual features were drowsiness, tachypnea with acidotic respiration, and then followed by recurrent generalized seizure that lasted until relieved by treatment. The seizures were associated with loss of consciousness and coma. In their investigation, they found significant anemia in six of the patients. Human leukocytosis was seen in almost all of the cases. They did have um, one case that had meningitis and septicemia as well. Some of the cases had metabolic acidosis, and one case had elevated LFTs and uh, elevated prothrombin time. That case, they did a liver biopsy and found marked fatty infiltration of the liver and mitochondrial damage um, that was typical of that seen in Rye syndrome. The treatment um, for these patients was um, supportive care. Um, Eleven of the patients survived. And then, so they went on to talk about where the Margosa oil um, comes from and the tox the source of the toxin within it. It's manufactured in India and then imported in metal drums and sold. It's then bottled and then sold under numerous brand names. When they looked at the um, the oil itself, they found that um, samples from bottles and from the drums were um, contained the toxic, but the degree of toxicity varied from one source to the other, and that darker oils were more toxic than lighter ones. When they did animal studies, they found a metabolic acidosis was one of the main features, 
and that early treatment of the acidosis can prevent the associated convulsions. The liver biopsies, they've been pointed out, uh, as well as um, post-mortem studies, demonstrated the um, fatty infiltration of the liver and proximal renal tubules with mitochondrial damage and cerebral edema occurring within 3 to 24 hours of ingestion of the oil. And this is um, resemble those observed with Ray syndrome. So in their discussion, they went on um, to talk about how this, um, the danger of this is not noticed very well. And that could be because many of the cases are just missed or thought that it was from uh, is misdiagnosed. Um, it's a common practice to give five mils of this oil to infants in this in the Southeast Asia, and the uh, the oils contain uh, toxins that are not in quantity sufficient to harm or be noticeable in older children and adults. And then the another contributing um, factor in this was that the there's a possibility that um, this other plant, the Persian lilac, has uh, another toxin in it, and it resembles the Indian lilac that's used in the Marcos oil. So it's possible that um, when they um, produced those um, bottles, that it had Persian lilac contaminated in them, as in, and that would have increased those levels of toxins in that. In those cases, where it may not be the case for the rest of the time. And then um, they did. They talked about the structural study from this, and that it was a unsaturated hydroxyaldehyde and it retains its toxicity after boiling for five minutes. So that's pretty much it for this article. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is sort of a funny article because it's often cited when people talk about toxicity, but it was, as you read it, they don't really make their case very well. They had um, a, a 13 infants, but one of which had sepsis. So we got to get rid of Finn. Um, only one person actually had liver function abnormalities and no hyperadenemia is described, and that is the only person who got a liver biopsy, and it described the liver biopsy as fatty infiltration, which is a common endpoint of a lot of diseases. And then they go on and so to cite their own um, abstracted but not published study on mice that said, yeah, we gave the same oil to mice, and they got fatty infiltration but also renal tubule damage and cerebral edema with this oil. So there may be something in this oil that's toxic, but I'm not sure it's Ray syndrome. I mean, they didn't make a strong case for it, but unfortunately people have often quoted this, misquoted this article. Perhaps we can now say that Ray syndrome is an end uh, point of uh, Margosa oil. Well, Margosa oil is actually, according to this article, more... Toxicity is more common now than the, <laughs> race syndrome. Well, by the incidence of 11 patients. That's twice the incidence of race syndrome. So. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to finish up one other article. So we'll let the panel decide here. Is this race or is this something else? This is from the New England Journal in 1997. I remind you that some of the antecedent diseases were diarrheal diseases. So this is a case report of a 17-year-old boy who ate 
reheated pesto and spaghetti. And it was left at room temperature for several days before they threw it in the pan and cooked it up. And he had some abdominal pain, some diarrhea. And um, his father, who was a physician, um, gave him a variety of things, including aspirin, Tylenol, and charcoal, um, as well as meclizine and another antiemetic in Europe, Domperidone. So he's on at least, at least four medicines. Unfortunately, a very sad story continues. He, he, he gets sicker. His transaminases go up to SPOT of 2,000, ALT of 5,000, creatinine kinase goes up to 2,500, bilirubin goes up to 7, which wasn't described in any of the cases, mind you. Creatinine goes up, metabolic acidosis, and he dies of fulminant hepatic failure, rhabdomyolysis, and renal failure over the next couple of days. The father, who also ate a little of it, got a little sick with some transaminitis, but he got better. And so they did a variety of assays on cells and stuff they grew from the intestine, and they ruled out hepatitis A, B, and C, and they tested the pesto source for toxic mushrooms and arsenic and all sorts of other stuff, trying to figure out what it was. And they say, well, in the end game, it probably was this bacillus cerulide. cerulide. Toxin, but they mentioned in their discussion that, hmm, this looks a lot like Ray syndrome, oh, by the way. So, um, so uh, they mentioned that both of these things produce diffuse microvesicular steatosis, decreased mitochondrial beta oxidation, and they give the differential of that con, uh, those two things as Ray syndrome, fatty liver pregnancy, valproic acid, hypoglycin uh, from ackee fruit, which we haven't covered, and other inherited disorders of mitochondrial androgen metabolism, which there's numerous ones. So they yet throw in yet another thing that may fall into the perfect storm of genetics, disease, um, and uh, end stage of uh, fatty liver failure and uh, cerebral edema. So I, I don't think we know. I mean, the way I kind of look at it is... This is kind of like G6P deficiency in fava beans. There's probably a lot of people with G6P deficiency, but we don't eat a lot of fava beans. The unlucky people who eat fava beans and have G6P deficiency get this bad disease.